I love Bitcoin. I, I don't want to sell it. I'm an old hodler. I've been around eight years, but like 50 years worth of volatility <laughs> and stress. And what's more virtuous, selling it or lending it and taking risk with it and then never having to sell? All right, Dan, back with a, uh, a round two, a much desired round two. Uh, how's, uh, how you been? Doing well, just moved to Austin Monday, so uh, just enjoying the breakfast tacos, barbecue, and uh, pool vibes. Nice. Very fun. I heard it's like 105 degrees down there right now. Yeah, it's pretty damn hot, but uh, <laughs> if you uh, stay inside or you're in, the, in water when you're outside, it's not too bad. Nice. All right, before we jump in, real quick shout out to the advertisers, Luca and Exodus. Stay tuned. You'll hear more about them later in the show. I tried, uh, we, had, we had a few brief conversations in Miami. And you're you're a little local celebrity down there. It was great to see. Yeah, I, I went into COVID with like thirty thousand Twitter followers. Came out of COVID with two hundred and seventy thousand. So it's been a little bit of an adjustment. Most of the time, when you your popularity increases, you meet people in person and you sort of adjust with it. But with COVID, I went you know we all went into hiding. Came out, and uh, I think it was awesome though. It was really cool to see the vibe of of the Bitcoin community in Miami. Everyone is excited. Everyone is into building something, into into developing the ecosystem. So, I think that uh, that plus the news of like El Salvador was like a really cool marriage of everything together. Um, so I couldn't be more excited to meet everyone in person. It was uh, it was both tiring but really exhilarating at the same time. My favorite uh, my favorite picture to come out of Miami was you at the club with Paris Hilton. What's uh, what's the story behind that one? Yeah, so, <laughs> so we, there was, there was the, I did a little bit of a self-troll with, uh, there's the meme of the guy talking to the girl at the club and she's got that funny face and the people insert text that's like what he's saying to the girl and it's usually something very boring. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I kind of uh, did a little self-troll there, but at the at uh, one of the clubs, Fluffy Pony, um, Ricardo Spagnetti, the, uh, one of the Ethereum, uh, sorry, one of the Monero founders he had had a kind of a birthday shindig and then um we were hanging out and kind of randomly he's like hey i'm gonna go say hi to paris do you want to come join and i was like sure yeah i'll, I'll come say hi so it's just her in the booth kind of by herself with like one other friend and then him and i popped up there for a few minutes to kind of hang out so uh talk talk to her for a little bit it was kind of fun to get to know her a little bit i mean it's at a club right it's super loud it's yeah. not like you're gonna have like an in-depth conversation or something but she's been in crypto since 2016 is what she told me wow. um, so i think that's super cool what do you think of uh, Fluffy's, I guess it's not Fluffy's thing, but there's a few other folks. Uh, what is it, Yat, the emoji thing? Yeah, so it was a Yat party. I was at, at that. I was you, at, uh, yeah, you were there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a Yat party. Uh, I think their emoji stuff's kind of fun. I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of a Bitcoin guy, but the, uh, the Yat emoji stuff, I think their marketing, coming from a marketer's perspective like my own, I think their marketing's phenomenal. Yeah. Like her dress was all emojis, you know, and then also like, um, the club was uh, pretty incredible. <laughs> it reminded me of like a proper, proper crypto conference. Uh, getting back in a full swing. I mean, free drinks, full apps. Who was that um, that came out? Was it G Easy that came out at like one a.m. or something? Yeah, G. Yeah, G Easy played. Um, so it was a pretty cool experience. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean, when you have a big marketing budget, that's what you can do. The uh, the Bitcoin community doesn't have any marketing budget, so <laughs> a little trickier for stuff like that. Totally. But uh, yeah, yeah, Toronto, I think a good party. All right. Speaking of Bitcoin, so we are here. We've got an hour to record. We're going to create basically the master class for uh, how to earn yield on your Bitcoin, but go so much deeper than that. Talk about the different products. Talk about the different risks. Um, there's some new yield products out there uh, that I'm curious to get your take on. Um, but I think let's start really high level. Um, we I sent out this tweet. We got 136 comments. I said, I'm recording a masterclass on yield wow. uh, with Dan Held. What questions do you have? So we've got a whole bunch of stuff lined up. But the first question was just, you know, really high level. How do people earn yield outside of Bitcoin? Like what is yield and how do people earn yield in traditional capital markets right now? Yeah. So we'll kind of talk about it from an esoteric perspective of like, what is yield? Yield as a classical definition is um, essentially earning something for taking on risk. So uh, this would be like, I lend someone uh, a certain, I lend someone $10,000 to start a business. They pay me back and they owe me a certain amount of interest. And that's a yield that I generate. It's a yield. I am earning money with my money. 
but I'm taking risk in order to earn that yield. Now, typically, uh, interest rate, uh, the interest rate or yield that you generate is somewhat correlated with the riskiness of the investment. Um, if it's very high risk, there's, uh, you want to be paid back sooner for the risk that you're taking on your principal, which is the original amount that you've lent out. So with Bitcoin, a lot of people, I think, are super interested in earning yield on their Bitcoin, but they should remember that ultimately they're always taking on risk. This is not hodling. It's not hodling with your own you know, self-custody solution. You are taking on risk and you're hoping that you've assessed the risk properly to where your return will outstrip the risk that you've taken. That's any investment, right? Um, not every investment wins. In some investments, the risk was assessed poorly and assessed poorly, and that means that you will lose money. You'll lose some of your principal. Um, I think Juthika Chow had a really good uh, summation of what yield ultimately represents. And yield is the monetization of tail risk. So we look at the risk of a default on a loan. We look at the risk of like a smart contract failure with like DeFi yield. Um, we look at all sorts of different risks. And what yield really represents is the manifestation of that risk in the form of compensation. So that's what yield is at a high level. Um, with your Bitcoin, there's a lot of different ways to earn yield. And basically what that means is there's a, there's a lot of different ways you can risk your Bitcoin. Um, and each one has its own trade-offs that make it more palatable for some people. And, and there's no free lunch in this world. There's always trade-offs with everything that we do. Uh, and so it's been, for me, a really thrilling journey down that rabbit hole of, of looking at how to earn a yield on my coins. When did you first start earning yield on your Bitcoin? Back in 2019, so it's been almost two years. So I'm, I'm one of the first folks to write up. I have a week, I have a monthly yield report where I go through and, and detail out all the different uh, type of investments that I've been trying out. And so I've been updating that for almost two years now. So what happened in 2019 that made you want to do this? Was it you? Did the products get built out? Were they? Was it just a? You saw that the you know the risk return was was there for the taking, or you just had more time? What happened? Yeah, I think a combination of the above. Um, there was a, a new company called BlockFi that came out. BlockFi made it much easier to earn a yield. Uh, they were also, I think, a little bit better with their content and marketing strategy to where I became aware of it. Um, they also had lower minimums than existing players like Genesis Trading. Um, so that was one big factor. Number two is I found it fascinating. I wanted to go down the rabbit hole and understand how was this yield being generated? Where was this yield coming from? What risks were I, you know, was I taking? I'm a, I'm a long-term hodler. And for me, understanding that risk is really critical because I don't want to lose my principal. A third, I'm ultimately, I'd never want to sell my Bitcoin. And so my goal is if I can, my hope and goal is that if I can ass assess the risk properly, that maybe I could earn a yield on my Bitcoin and never, ever have to sell and just live off of that yield. So that's kind of my dream is like never having to sell my coin, earning enough of a yield off that risk that I'm incurring and, and being smart about that risk to where uh, I can keep holding my stack of coins for forever. All right. So it's been two years now. How much Bitcoin have you made from the yield strategies? The last time I checked, it was, or that we spoke, it was two, I think two Bitcoin. Is that yeah, roughly about, around where you're about at? About two Bitcoin. Yeah, about two Bitcoins would have generated from the, the strategy. And can you say how much Bitcoin it took to generate two Bitcoin? Yeah, so this is public information. I share it in a Google spreadsheet. It's my yield, my yield spreadsheet where I disclose my individual positions. Uh, I also think this is the only ethical way that I can refer folks to these products is if I disclose how much I have that personally, I have there personally. Around 20 to 30, it depends on the month, it depends on how I've allocated it. Um, some I'm moving around to new solutions. So some are kind of in flight, but around 20 to 30 just depends on the month. Cool. Uh what percentage of your total Bitcoin holdings is this? If you're comfortable sharing something like that, because I know a lot of the list, I know a lot of the listeners are asking, okay, if I get comfortable with putting some, some, you know, Bitcoin on something like BlockFi, should I put all of my Bitcoin on BlockFi? Should I put 10% of my Bitcoin on? I don't, I don't want to just call out BlockFi here, Ledin or Deribit or LedgerX or whatever it is, but what percentage of, do you allocate if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I'm not going to give an exact percentage, but what, what I would say is that it's obviously less than half um, and that I wouldn't recommend that people risk a large portion of their portfolio. Um, I'd recommend that people risk a small portion, and that's subjective depending on the individual, right? That could be 1%, 5%, 10%, 20%. 
I definitely don't recommend half or 40%. I think definitely something uh, much smaller than that would be ideal. Got it. All right. So let's get into some more specifics. So what is the easiest way to earn yield right now in Bitcoin? Yeah, I think that's the right way to approach this because it could get really in the weeds the other way. And yeah. also most people want to know what's the easy button to press. The easiest way to earn yield is via lending platforms. Um, I define these as like Ledin or BlockFi or Genesis Trading. Um, those three are really, really big, really, really reputable companies in the space. Um, you know, Ledin and BlockFi are more retail oriented which means that they're they're focused on like people who have $100 they want to put into one of these accounts or $1,000. Genesis has been operating since 2013. It's a DCG company. They've never had a socialized loss in eight years in crypto, which is insane. I mean, that's if you haven't had a loss by now, that's, that's a pretty impressive risk management skills. Um, they're also a D DCG subsidiary, which means that there might be some help if anything ever happened. That's not explicit. That's more implicit. Um, they, have, they have not said that to me, um, but I could see how, you know, they're, you know, it's under an umbrella of different companies. Um, so, but, but with that one, Genesis Trading, you have to have a minimum of like 50 or 100 Bitcoins <laughs> to, uh, to be a customer, which most people don't have. Um, so that's where I mentioned it in my yield spreadsheet, but it's only available to folks who are very high net worth um, versus Ledin and BlockFi, which are available to everyone else. And, and the way that this works is you send in your Bitcoin, you sign an agreement, they lend out your Bitcoin, and those Bitcoin are lent out. Um, sometimes it's a fixed contract when it's a Genesis trading uh, loan, or it could be open term. And then for Ledin and BlockFi, it's just open term. So you can deposit and then withdraw anytime. Typically, you get your funds within 24 hours. Uh, a lot of them have uh, security requirements where you've got to do double check your, your verifying your identity before you can withdraw. I personally like that as a feature. I think some people want to withdraw their funds immediately. I personally don't mind having my funds a little bit stuck in there just in case I had my account compromised, which would be very improbable um, because then at least there's a delay to where I could stop something negative from happening. So that's as easy as it is. You, you sign up, you confirm with an ID that you are who you are, you deposit coin, the coin earns yield, and then you withdraw the coin whenever you'd like. Um, or you can have, and what's kind of cool too is depending on the service, you can have your yield denominated in either Bitcoin, dollars, Litecoin, you can have it in anything you'd like. So depending on whatever cryptocurrency suits your fancy, um, you can earn a yield in that coin. So it's not just Bitcoin, you can earn a yield in any cryptocurrency. And then also you can, um, you know, you can take that and, and you can, you know, it's a compounding return. So if you take Bitcoin, earn Bitcoin in it, and then you keep the Bitcoin in there, then it's a compounding return, which is really, really cool. So let's go deeper. Let's keep using BlockFi for this example. So what is the reason why we got, I got it. If anyone's interested in BlockFi, I had an uh, interview with Flory Marquez, uh, the, one of the co-founders of BlockFi, where we talked about this pretty in depth, but at a high level, like why does BlockFi want my Bitcoin? What are they, what are they doing with it? Great question. So, okay. How are they earning this return? And, and then uh, as a company, how do they operate? Well, what these companies do is they take your Bitcoin and they find folks who want to borrow it. And there's a couple different sources of borrow. Uh, there's, for example, the classic futures arbitrage trade, the cash and carry trade, where folks are taking advantage of a premium that exists between the futures and spot price. So that's a source of yield generation. Uh, there's also, at times, there's a premium that exists with the um, GBTC premium. GBTC is a trust product that sometimes has a premium associated with it where folks can capture that delta as well, where you can buy spot, uh, construct an arrangement where you're essentially neutral and you just capture that spread. Um, there's also, so people take, so the borrowers are using that Bitcoin for those activities. There's also shorters, so they short Bitcoin. A lot of Bitcoiners don't like lending out their coins to shorters because they perceive that as very anti-Bitcoin. I disagree, and Ben Davenport had a really great quote here. Ben Davenport is the former co-founder of BitGo. He's a longtime Bitcoin OG, really great guy. He had a great quote on this where he said, by lending your coin to short sellers, you're earning yield on the on the tiers of wrecked people who hate Bitcoin. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what we do. I mean, Bitcoin goes up over time. Like there's no better most, trade than that. <laughs> yeah, most shorters get wrecked, you know, when they try to short Bitcoin. So over time, you're earning a yield on their tiers. You know, so actually it's very virtuous. You're stacking more coin. 
as they get wrecked. So a lot of people perceive it as like, oh, you're helping them out. You're not helping them out at all. You're just enabling them to place the trade. And most of the time the trade goes badly. <laughs> so um, those are a couple sources of borrow. There's another one, which is DeFi. Some people borrow Bitcoin, get it wrapped, and then put that into DeFi protocols. The yield on different DeFi protocols, it depends on what type of yield is being generated in DeFi. I don't want to dive too deeply in there because it gets really technical. And that's not a lot of, of what I cover right now. I cover more centralized uh, yield generation opportunities. But those are the primary risks that you're taking with your coin is they take your coin, lend them to folks who are doing these sort of trades. Um, now, but most of these borrowing activities are done on a partial collateralization or over collateralized basis. So what that means is if they take your Bitcoin and lend them to someone else, that's not uncollateralized. So they've posted maybe 70 or 80 percent USDT or USD value to collateralize that Bitcoin loan. So it's not like they're just giving them 10 Bitcoin. They're like, hey, pay us back at a future date. That loan is typically collateralized. Um, you also have something interesting, too, to where different margin pools that exchanges require borrowed coin in order to operate. Or they require coin in order to operate. So, you know, for these lending platforms, exchanges could be customers of theirs as well, which that would be a very low risk profile. Exchanges manage all of their own risks in their margin pool, and margin pool issues are very rare. Um, for example, like Poloniex had one with the Clams coin uh, where there was a socialized loss. But Poloniex is a very, um, I would say, relatively immaterial exchange with almost no trading volume. So they didn't have any money to cover that hole. Whereas like if there's a margin trading issue at a big exchange, they'd likely plug that hole or something like that. So um, <clears throat> some of these borrowers are very reputable and we don't know what that loan book looks like. We don't know how many small hedge funds, big hedge funds, exchanges are borrowers from these lending platforms, but we do know that it's a mix of all of the above. Uh, what are the risks of, you remember, uh, what was it, December, January when BlockFi had the whole GBTC thing going on? What are the risks of something like that and, and, and what actually happened there? Yeah, so GBTC, there used to be a premium between the traded price of GBTC and the, um, was it NAV or the underlying mm -hmm. value price? So investors could take their Bitcoin, send it to GBTC, which got them shares at NAV, and then there was a premium uh, between NAV and the, and the market price. And they could capture that spread or that, that premium uh, with very little risk. Now, they could capture that too, and they could capture that plus the upside of Bitcoin, or they could just capture and be neutral. They could buy Bitcoin and then short GBTC and capture the spread uh, where they could be more neutral on the trade. Um, what happened was is that the premium collapsed into a, into a discount rather than there being a premium there to arbitrage away. That actually led to a discount where less and less folks were giant buying GBTC and there wasn't enough buyers to push that price back up above 100%. What that means is that companies that had exposure to that trade or borrowers who had exposure to that trade, uh, there could be a risk that they might default um, or default and or uh, be margin called or have some sort of loss that could be eventually find its way to these lending platforms. So far, we haven't seen that happen yet. We haven't seen a socialized loss yet at one of these lending platforms because of the GBTC trade. They've got a big book of business. And with BlockFi, the concern was that this was an overly large uh, part of their business as they were trading this uh, with their own house money, uh, like with their own money rather than um, trading. They were trading this with customer funds on behalf of BlockFi rather than them lending this out to a specific borrower. We don't know how BlockFi positioned their, their trade. We don't know if they took, if they had any downside protection or if it's a market neutral trade. We don't know how much money they already took off the table. There has been some like leak doc, leak documents that some you know they had an overly large exposure. Um, there's a lot of different ways that even if they that did exist, to say a very large exposure, and they had a, a large loss, the loss wasn't so large that I don't think they could plug that with revenue numbers or a new fundraise, which they raised I think a very large round soon after those rumors um, came out. And so you know with these companies, they are making a lot of money which means that if there is a loss, which inevitably there will be, there will be bad borrowers or a trade will go wrong. It's just the trades need to go wrong less than they go right. And that's how you make money. Uh, that's how traders make money and that's how lenders make money. So, uh, so far we haven't seen that blow up. These things are really tricky though. We don't have perfect visibility. We don't have audited financials that are publicly available that we can look at. 
Uh, there's a lot of rumors on the internet. There's a lot of rumors on Twitter. But other than that, we can just go by kind of those surface level analysis of, of how they've structured their risk management operations and uh, hope that they've done it properly. All right, guys, it's ad time. I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. There's one company that's powering a ton of the crypto data in the space. And by crypto data, basically there's all these uh, companies, traditional financial institutions that need crypto data for you know accounting purposes, for tracking the value of their assets, for running audits, right? And so there's one company, they're called Luka, L-U-K-K-A. I've talked about them on the podcast before. They're powering some of the largest businesses in the world in both the crypto and traditional financial services space. They're the primary pricing source used by S&P Dow Jones indices for their new crypto index. So I want to uh, just throw this out there. If you guys are any sort of business that needs to value crypto assets, create financial statements, uh, perform any sort of normal accounting audit process, you guys should head on over. It's Luka, L-U-K-K-A, Luka.tech, L-U-K-K-A dot T-E-C-H forward slash empire, or just head over to Luka.tech forward slash empire. Tell them I sent you, they'll take care of you. Alrighty, let me know what you think. The other day I posted on Twitter, I said, who's the best entrepreneur? Who's the entrepreneur that everyone should know in crypto, but maybe doesn't know already, right? We're not talking like the mainstream, the super big folks. Who's the best entrepreneur that's kind of under the radar in crypto? God, post went crazy. Got like 300, 400 comments. There was one name that kept popping up, JP Richardson. JP Richardson at Exodus. So I thought, man, that's crazy. Exodus is one of our sponsors. Let me call him out, right? So JP Richardson, CEO of Exodus, done an amazing job building one of crypto's most loved apps. And there's a number of reasons. They got a mobile app, they got a desktop app. You can instantly exchange over a hundred different currencies. They've got interactive charts. Uh, they're fully integrated with uh, the Trezor hardware wallet, so you can always be secure. So if you're looking to buy crypto, if you're looking to just get away from just buying one or two currencies, you wanna explore other things, go to exodus.com forward slash empire, or just search Exodus in the uh, App Store or Play Store. Check them out, shoot me a DM on Twitter, let me know what you thought, go follow JP Richardson, go check out Exodus. All right, exodus.com forward slash empire. How do you deal with kind of the Bitcoin maxi, like very hardcore maxi crowd that says, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. I can't believe you're, you know, it's very antithetical to, you know, Bitcoin to say, all right, I'm take, I'm buying Bitcoin and then I'm just going to go lock it up in a centralized lending platform. You know, no different than me parking my fiat at Bank of America. Yeah, a lot of uh, more hardcore Bitcoiner types, which I totally respect that they want to fight for the core principles of Bitcoin. And I totally agree that not your keys, not your coin coins is the best way to store your Bitcoin. No doubt. No doubt about it. And I'm not trying to convince anyone otherwise. I'm an old hodler. I've been around eight years. It's a long time. It's like dog years and Bitcoin years. It's like 50 years worth of volatility <laughs> and stress. And I love Bitcoin. I, I don't want to sell it. And so what's more virtuous? Selling it? or lending it and taking risk with it and then never having to sell. And that could either be lending or borrowing against it where you borrow, like, let's say $100,000 against your Bitcoin using your Bitcoin as collateral. And if Bitcoin's value keeps going up, you can easily pay off that loan later. Um, I view those two as a more uh, core ethos centric to Bitcoin and Bitcoin's future, especially as, as someone who really wants to hold hodl Bitcoin for forever than just selling Bitcoin when there's a life event like buying an apartment or buying a car and you need a large sum of money. So I think that it's being a little bit overly dogmatic around not your keys, not your coins. We can inverse that. It's my keys, my coins. If I want to take the risk, I'm going to fucking take the risk. I don't, I don't care. Like I'm free to do whatever I want with my just coins. Just get a couple of angry uh, Twitter people coming after you. Oh yeah. Especially <laughs> two years ago. It was very controversial. I mean, that was, that was something that people, you know, controversial, right? It's kind of silly now. Everyone does it. But two years ago, that was somewhat controversial. I don't debate Bitcoiners on that holding your own coins, like not your keys, not your coins. Self-custody is the best way forward. I totally agree. But I'm willing to take risk. And if I want to take risk, that's how I'm going to earn yield. It's not for everybody. I'm not saying everyone should do it. I'm saying if you feel comfortable with that risk, which you may not, and if you hodl it and you hodl it in your own self-custody, that's a smart move. If you want to take some risks too, that may or may not be a smart move. We'll have to see, see how it plays out. 
So for me, yeah, I think some Bitcoiners are a little bit too dogmatic about it, especially because in a free system like this, you can't stop lending and borrowing from happening. That's going to happen no matter what. No matter what we do, people will want to lend it and earn a yield, and people will want to borrow it and trade with it or, or perform different trades with it. This is all part of a very healthy capitalist economy. Like this is classic, a classic economy. And I don't know, I think some of the folks on the Bitcoin side, you know, are just really, really allergic to anything banking wise, but like banks aren't inherently bad or good. You know, in the free banking era, this was, this is what I envision Bitcoin going back to is more of a free banking era where it's a more libertarian, very risk adjusted uh, banking system where, and that's not necessarily a bad or good thing. Like, you know, you can like you can huddle your dollars or gold and, you know, remember, Bitcoin will ne won't have price appreciation for forever. Eventually, Bitcoin becomes gold 2.0 and then it'll be really boring. <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin will be the, the least risky investment that you hold. That's the whole point of Bitcoin is it's a gold 2.0. You don't take risks with it, with it. And that's great. But in 20 years, when we've achieved success where we are the world reserve currency, You'll probably want to take your coins and you may want to put it into more risky investments to earn a higher yield. Nothing good or bad about that. That's just that's just capitalism at work. Uh, you're just taking you're looking at all the assets that you hold and reallocating those based on your own assessment of risk. So, yeah, I think some Bitcoin is a little bit too dogmatic. I understand and respect the core principles of where they're coming from. So I'm not saying that they're wrong. I think they're being a little bit too dogmatic, though. And for each to each their own on how they want to manage their coins. I don't think there's a wrong or right way to do it. You're uh, you're pretty vocal about being. I, w I wouldn't actually call it anti ETH, but like you know, just you know, you you own. I think all Bitcoin or primarily Bitcoin, and you know, but based on what you just said, you, you know, in 20 years from now, Bitcoin will be your safest asset, and you'll want to start looking elsewhere for yield. You know, if you extend that, or if you actually pull that timeline forward, at what point is it? In a year from now? Is it in five years from now? If the future actually looks like what it, you think it's going to look like, at some point, you're going to be looking elsewhere outside of Bitcoin. At what point does that flip switch for you? And you say, OK, maybe it is time to explore uh, DeFi, E, things like that. Yeah, I'm actually about to explore Bitcoin DeFi uh, very, very soon. So I'm about to announce this. Sovereign and Thorchain and things like that. Yes. Uh, first on deck would be like Sovereign, Stacks, uh, Atomic Finance and Lightning. So these are more primitive forms of DeFi. I don't think it's as advanced as the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, my stance on Ethereum is that it's interesting. I'm not one of the Bitcoiners that's like super, like that I think it's like a morally bad thing or not. I just have different principles. Like for Bitcoiners, we're very focused on decentralization and we're focused on sound money. Whereas De uh, DeFi and Ethereum is more about like developer-friendly adapt platform ecosystem. And I respect that. That's cool. They're free to do that. Um, you know, I only get a, you know, kind of push back when they come and try to come and swim into Bitcoin's lane where they say, oh, we're sound money too. And then that's where I kind of, you know, try to push back on that narrative because I find that to be a little disingenuous. Um, but I certainly respect everyone's right and, and free will to go try and experiment with things. And I think the DeFi stuff is certainly interesting over there. And that's why I'm exploring DeFi myself with Bitcoin DeFi. Um, so I, I, I do think that that's going to be kind of a fun journey to where I'm going to go down and kind of challenge some of the assumptions I had. I'm going to learn about it and write about it. So I'll be writing this up uh, both on YouTube and my newsletter and on TweetStorms to where it's going to be Dan Held's journey through understanding DeFi a little bit more. So I'm excited for it. There's a lot I have to learn. Um, there's a lot, I a lot of assumptions I probably have that maybe maybe could be wrong. And I'm just kind of excited to see what's being built on Bitcoin and then seeing the compare and contrast between like Bitcoin and Ethereum. You love a good tweet storm. It's, it works. It gets the people going. Uh, yeah, I think what's so, um, nice, what's so nice about a tweet storm, too, is it compresses yeah. the narrative really tightly. You know, it's like a story that feeds you paragraph by paragraph versus seeing a five page article and it just seems daunting. It kind of pulls you forward. Oh, I, I like them because it actually helps the writer myself. Uh, compress my thinking, right? I've got a bunch of stuff floating around in my head. And if you actually have to compress it into a compelling thread where people are going to drop off the thread, if each tweet isn't succinct, right? it actually helps you to, you know, define your thinking a little better. Totally. So how do you go about assessing a new product? So like, let's take, um, you know, Muneeb's doing some great work over at, uh, you know, with Stacks and, uh, Yago or Idan, I forget the guy's name at Sovereign. They're doing great work as well. How do you assess a new product like that? 
That's a great question. So a lot of this is is more like live streaming my, my thoughts on how I assess it, uh, which we'll start with first knowing some of the founders behind it. Um, I've known Eden, uh, Eden Yago for a long time in the crypto space, same with Munib. Um, so with both, I've reached out to both teams to kind of jam and understand a little bit more where I'm like, hey, can you guys uh, give me some technical resources to where they can explain it to a non-engineer on some of these things of how it works. So part of that is, is education and discovery. So with every topic I've ever written about, I spent a lot of time reading and learning. So that's where I'm going to start here is just going and digesting all of the available content out there for both which I don't think there's gonna be a huge mountain of that. I've, I've gotten um, content from both teams and I've also gotten content from the community um, to where you know I wanna see the negative and positive perspectives of both. So I start with that, as I don't know a lot and I'm trying to get up to speed. From there, I'll be putting out my thoughts and sort of this will be on social channels. And what's so cool about social like Twitter is there might be, and I kind of envision this happening, like potentially like a debate occurring where I write a tweet storm on Stack Sovereign or uh, Atomic Finance, one of the founders thinks I said something incorrectly and calls me out on it, which is good. I think it's all about like, I'm going to make a mistake when, when I talk about different things. Having them call certain mistakes out would be great. Um, so with me, I think what I'm excited about it, it, there's also, I don't know if you're, I think it's called, is it Cunningham's Law? I forget what the law is called, but it's the quickest way to get the correct answer is asking is, is, is not asking the question, it's, it's saying the wrong answer. You know, yeah, so, exactly. So part of this, I hope I don't say too many wrong answers. I'm hoping this is a discovery process where I come out with a very succinctly, nicely distilled narrative, but uh, that, that, that that's accurate. But I'm sure there's gonna be some things that are wrong. And that's what's so cool about Twitter is people are gonna hop in. And I'm sure the different protocols will hop in and talk to each other about what nuances were missed. And from that, I hope to go back and kind of, this is going to be a continuing journey of, I don't think it's just going to be one to two months. It's going to be three to six to 12 months of me going exploring, kind of like my yield tweet storm. These are each yeah. kind of threads, I think that can be really valuable for folks. And I sort of transparently blog about it, blog and write about it, where I'm like, hey, this is my own journey. And I'm very good about compressing the narrative and making it simple about like what trade-offs are occurring here. And I think with DeFi, that's really what's missing is there's not a lot of good... Uh, content around, okay, where's this yield coming from? So it's not just infinity yield for free. Why am I getting 100% APY on sushi swap? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and that's where I think there there's a lot of very technical folks in that space. And I think that the value that I'm going to bring is I'm going to go, okay, guys, you're getting this yield because this is the risk that you're taking. And here's what the probability of that risk is of like low probability to high probability. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that's kind of the distillation of my output is something that's digestible and easy to understand where I've gone through the pain of, of having to dig it in the weeds with the different teams, get in the weeds with the back and forth and what trade-offs have been made. Um, and then also I've been forward with everyone that I've talked to so far, you know, both stacks, sovereign and, um, and atomic finance where I'm like, I'm going to be unapologetically forward with how I, I view these projects. So you may not like my output. Yeah. <laughs> it may be, maybe something a little bit critical. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that moves the projects forward, but I mean, are you, so would you be comfortable? Let's say you dig into stacks, right? I think they had an announcement today. It's like XBTC, or I was playing, I was actually playing around with sovereign two nights ago and you have to first purchase, uh, uh, RBTC on the RSK blockchain to then move into sovereign. And, you know, I know again, hardcore Bitcoin, you're a hardcore Bitcoiner. Would you be comfortable holding something like RBTC or to take that further, would you be comfortable holding something like Sovereign after you do your due diligence? That's a great question. So during the period of evaluating it, I inherently have to have some of it. And so in that period, I will have it, but I'm going to be adding a disclaimer that I do not recommend holding these coins and that by no means am I recommending them. Uh, I'm not recommending them and that my, my primary investment thesis is still Bitcoin. But in order to play around with them, I do inherently have to hold some of them and use that to go explore them. So I will have to do that, but I just want to be clear that, you know, with, with me, this is a discovery process, but I am not advocating for them. I am not recommending them. I'm merely trying it out to see what Bitcoin on DeFi looks like, but my recommendation is still just Bitcoin. Yep. All right. Let's get back to uh, some of the yield things. So, so from my understanding and reading a lot of your work, there are, I'm thinking of six different ways to earn yield right now. You've got lending, like Ledin and BlockFi, you have covered calls with Deribit and LedgerX, you have lending Bitcoin to exchange margin pools, 
you have you could you could yourself do something like the cash and carry trade. Uh, you could use something like coin joins, and and then there's kind of the sixth bucket where I'd say like the lightning pool yield or things like sovereign or stacks, things that you're starting to play around with. Do I have are those kind of the main six areas that you're looking at right now? Yeah, I would say like sovereign stacks, lightning pool, coin joins. Those are like Bitcoin DeFi. I would call that more Bitcoin DeFi. Um, and then you have, yeah, you've got classic lending, which is lending to on lending platforms or lending to margin pools. I want to touch on that real quick because then we can kind of shift either to, then we can shift to the um, one of the last ones we haven't touched on, which is uh, covered call strategies. And I, I think uh, I'm one of the few people who've, who has explained these in a simple enough manner for most folks to grok. Um, when you lend coins to Ledin or BlockFi, they, they then take that and lend them out to a variety of different counterparties. You can't choose your counterparty, which makes that good and bad because you've, you've aggregated the risk, but at the same time, you don't know who they've lent it to. With exchange margin pools, it's actually, I think, a very great risk-adjusted return because you are lending coins to other traders on the platform, but the exchanges inherently have, you know, this is all internal risk management systems, and there's very few occasions where they've had losses, and it's all contained within there. These coins do not leave the exchange. I think those are great ways to earn yield. Um, Bitfinex is the biggest, most popular way to do that. Poloniex also has one. They're the ones who've had a loss, though, and they have very low amount. Of, they have a very low volume, and they're a very, very low volume exchange. That's where Bitfinex has had their margin pool running for, I think, like almost six years, a long, long time. Um, so I think that that's a really unique way to earn yield. It actually very closely mimics uh, fully paid securities lending, which exists for modern brokerages. So this is your Fidelity, E-Trade, these mainstream brokerages. Fully paid securities lending is a phenomenal way to earn yield with a very low risk. Now, lending to these margin pools is like that-esque, but not nearly as safe as fully paid securities lending back in that world. Um, you know, you actually can lend your GBTC to these brokerages and in that fully paid securities lending program and earn a yield there as well. Now, will your yield be higher than the annual management fee on GBTC? Maybe, maybe not. Um, but from what I've heard, it's 2 to 5%, which is pretty great considering all of the risk is with the broker. And the last time that that happened on like E-Trader Fidelity was never, that there was like a, a socialized loss. And they, even, if the, even if there was a loss, they'd likely plug it with their own money. And even if that happened and there was a, such a large event that there were so many losses, the Fed would probably step in and back them up. So fully paid securities lending in the traditional brokerage side is the safest way to do uh, lending. The yield, of course, is representative of that very low risk. So the yield is low. Um, lending to margin pools in the crypto world, I think, is a great way to earn a yield. Uh, all the risk is a, so if you trust the exchange, if you trust the risk management capabilities, that's what, how you would assess that risk. And the, I think the return is very well adjusted for that. The last So what that actually means, Dan, before getting into the next thing is sure. you open up like a Bitfinex account. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different margin pools, but we'll use Bitfinex as the example. You open up a Bitfinex account. Let's say I have three Bitcoin. I can just put my Bitcoin on Bitfinex and they will give me a, you know, two to 5% yield per se. Yeah, it's market rate. So the yield fluctuates. It depends on what the buyer, you know, the uh, the margin traders are willing to pay you to borrow borrow Bitcoin. So uh, Bitfinex doesn't set that. There's an order book for these these type of, and they have a, they have a whole yield management system where you can sort of set it on autopilot if you don't want to manage it yourself, or you can be really tactical and you know think very tactically about what sort of yield that you want or that you would only be prepared to to lend out for the return of risk or for that for that assessment of risk. Got it. So just a, a reminder for everyone, the market determines the rates on all this stuff usually. I mean, yeah. there there are people at places like BlockFi that determine it, but ultimately the market determines the rate. That's a, that's a great thing to bring up. A lot of people go, why did this company lower their rate? Why did they raise their rate? Well, on the underlying part of how this rate is determined is the market determines the rate. The, the borrowers are like... There's, there's lenders of coins who are like, I'd like to lend it at this value. And there's a borrower who's like, I'd like to borrow it at this. Eventually they come to an agreement and that's how the rate is determined. Now, certain companies subsidize their rate by eating some of the cost. So they'll give you a higher quoted yield. Let's say they add one more percent than their competitor to attract depositors. Um, but that is a subsidy, a long term that's not sustainable, but they're using it to subsidize growth of their business. Now, that's not a bad or good thing. Plenty of businesses do this. 
In fact, a lot of them might make more money on another part of their business that can subsidize this. So it's not an unsustainable business model. It's simply one to where they want to gain more market share. I mean, so it's no different than Uber charging $5 rides from, you know, financial district to Midtown, right? Exactly. And now it's 35 bucks, right? It's just venture, venture money flowing in to subsidize. Well, uh, same with big corporations too. Like Apple standing up new product lines, they might subsidize a new product line for five years until it's profitable. You know, these are, it's just a kind of a classic way to gain market share is yeah. you subsidize it with a more profitable side of the business. Now, an unsustainable uh, long-term rate would be one that's only subsidized by venture capital and they never eke out a profit. But I, I don't think that's the case here based on my conversations with all these different lending platforms. It seems like they're immensely profitable and that uh, VC money that's poured in isn't just to, um, you know, keep that subsidy going, that VC money is to grow as fast as possible. So yeah, of course there is uh, discounting that occurs at a, probably a little bit higher rate than it would because of that VC money, but that's just inherent for all consumer businesses now. So yeah. I would say that these are long-term sustainable business models though. So I don't think this, this is a, uh, a lot of folks worry that, oh, these, these companies wouldn't survive without VC money. I don't think that's the case at all. What do you think happens right now? We're in a, you know, this bull market. There's kind of two different places we could go. We could go into this, you know, you and me talked about the super cycle that, you know, you know, the last time, but you know, we could also go into a bear market. What, what happened to, what happens to rates and this yield market in both of those scenarios? Yeah. Good question. Um, rates aren't necessarily tied. It's really hard to suss out like a, a simple narrative of like, oh, rates will go up or down with the price. But typically when there's a bear market, people become more bearish and start to short Bitcoin at a higher frequency. <laughs> so there might be greater demand to borrow Bitcoin, which is required for the short trade. If that's the case, then the yield on Bitcoin might go up to short it. So as people become more bearish on it, they want to borrow it more to short it. And that might increase the demand for borrow, which increases the rate at which the borrowers are willing to pay. Um, you can look at Bitfinex's historical lending rates or funding rates. Um, that are available on their website. So you can look over time. It's hard to find a signal there though, of like there's a there's not like a very linear narrative of like price goes up, price goes down. You know, the price could go up too and people become bearish because they're like, well, Bitcoin just tripled, maybe it's gonna drop. So they might, you know, borrow, uh, shorters might wanna borrow at an increasing rate. So it's, it's really tough to parse out a, a simple narrative there. These companies, a lot of them were born during the bear market and they survived the March 12th, 2020, 80% uh, 80 plunge. Um, or was that a fit? No, a 50% plunge 50%. in one day. Yeah. Yeah. So if they survive something like that, I think these risk management systems are super robust. Um, again, I don't work in an auditing, fu auditing function at these companies. I can't vouch for the risk management systems, but all I can look at is what happened in the market. And if they survived that, and it seems like most did okay. A Genesis trading, by the way, puts out a quarterly report that I recommend everyone read. They're the first ones to do this where they transparently talk about, how much AUM they have, uh, mixtures of borrowers. Um, it's really fascinating. It's a really well done report and it's very succinct, concise and to the point, which some of the, it's not like a research report where it's, you know, a hundred pages and you're going to get page two, you're already getting confused. It's written for everyone to understand. So Genesis does a great job doing that. Definitely recommend everyone read that. The craziest stat from the recent Genesis report was, I think it was $32 billion that they traded last quarter and 8 billion came from corporations, which is a very yeah. interesting stat from that report. You, you read it. That was the most interesting thing I saw from that report as well of like yeah. the corporates representing their OTC volume. I was like, wow, that that's surprising. Cause that, that was more, I mean, that was a lot, that was a lot, let's put it this way. I think Tesla bought it from Coinbase. So they, they didn't buy it from Genesis. And Sailor, I don't think bought it from Genesis either. So who's yeah. who's buying that other eight, buying or selling that other eight billion dollars with the crypto, or most likely Bitcoin? Tough to say, but definitely a yep. bullish sign for the space. Indeed. Um, did you want to talk about uh, uh, covered calls for a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Um, I've heard you say that if you're ever thinking about selling your Bitcoin, you should first look at a covered call strategy. I've also heard you say. Uh, December 2020 and January of 2021 really freaked you out when it comes to covered calls. So would love to just get insight into, I mean, let's talk about the first one first. Yeah. Why should someone look at a covered call strategy if they're thinking about selling Bitcoin? Yeah. So you're hearing the word options here. That's what covered calls are. They're, they're, they're a type of option. 
and your eyes are probably starting already your eyes are probably already starting to glaze over you're you're thinking of like a beautiful mind with numbers all over the wall that's what most people think of options as they come across very confusing especially when it comes to pricing the options but when you sell them it's actually a very simple trade these are all trades right they're all it's all a bet on something and what the bet of a covered call is a covered call represents cover. It's covered because you own the underlying asset. You own Bitcoin. In a call option, when you sell a call option, what you're doing is you're selling your upside past a certain price. That's called the strike price. And you're selling that upside above that price as of a certain date called the expiration or expiry. So with the bet that you're making is that Bitcoin will not be higher than that strike price by the end of the expiration of that, of that contract. Now, uh, in compensation for that bet, the buyer of the call option is willing to pay you a certain amount of money called a premium in order to buy Bitcoin from you at that strike price, no matter how high the price of Bitcoin is. So uh, how this works in practice, let's, let's throw out some examples. Let's say uh, December 31st, 2021. That's the expiration of, a call, of this covered call. I hold Bitcoin. Let's say I've got 10 Bitcoin and I want to sell um, a $100,000 covered call. So I go out to the market. I'm on LedgerX, which is like a, a great options exchange or Deribit. Both are good. Those are like the two most popular out there. On these, as the seller of the covered call, I tell people, hey, I'm willing to let you buy this covered call at a certain price. And people buy it from me at that price or they'll, they'll go, well, I'm willing to this is how much I'm willing to pay you. So what that means is I, I put my 10 Bitcoin on LedgerX. Let's say I get paid $1,000 per coin for that, that um, privilege. So that's the premium that I earn. What happens is that th those coins are locked there until the end of the expiration of the term, until the expiration date. And then if Bitcoin is above $100,000 of Bitcoin, my call has been exercised. So what my return would look like there a return would look like um, I get my premium day one. So what happens is, uh, let's say I earn a 10% annualized yield on those 10 Bitcoin. So I essentially receive a one Bitcoin immediately. And I'm free to do whatever I like with that. I can transfer it off of the exchange. I can sell another covered call. I can do anything I'd like with it. Then my 10 coins are locked up until December 31st. If Bitcoin is above that price and that call option gets exercised, which means the buyer of the call option is like, hey, I want to exercise this option. What occurs is that I keep my premium and then I have to sell them my 10 Bitcoins at $100,000 per Bitcoin. So you keep all of the upside from the current price up to $100,000. You've just sold all of the upside past $100,000. So the way that these are priced are very complicated. But the TLDR is that the farther away from the current price of Bitcoin we are and the, and the shorter the date, like AKA like next week, the lower the yield is going to be because it's the probability that that event is going to occur. That's what essentially that, that yield is. So if I sold a million dollar covered call next month, <laughs> almost no one's going to buy that because the probability is so extremely low. So my yield would be representative of that, maybe like one BIP or something, something tiny. Now, if I sell you a covered call for next week and it's the current price of Bitcoin, like right at the current price today, well, a lot of people think that's a pretty probable event that Bitcoin might be higher next week. So that call option would be priced very expensively and I'd earn a very much a much higher yield. Now, what do these yields look like? But, that, but so, then you also, have to sell, you also have to sell your Bitcoin. That's right. You'd have to sell your Bitcoin no matter how high it went past that strike price. So how does it look in practice from my own experience? I was selling three to four X the current price of Bitcoin covered calls. So when Bitcoin is at $10,000, I was selling 30 to 40 K covered calls uh, one month, two months out, because historically that's a lot of price movement within a month or two. That was doing fine until January where I got a little scared. Now I didn't get exercise. I didn't get my options and it could call away. Um, but I got scared because it got pretty close to what my strike was. Things were getting really hot. And um, so, you know, if you're selling at about 3x the current price, which, which is pretty high, like remember, you keep all of that upside up till 3x and then you've capped it, right? I was earning like 3 to 5% a year, which is pretty sweet. Um, and then if you sell at the money call options, so which is like basically what the price is today, 
the annualized yield on that is like 40%, which is nuts. So when it comes to a tactical strategy, let's talk about this. Your partner goes, hey, Dan, or your partner goes to you and they're like, hey, we need to buy a house. We've got two kids on the way. You know, we've got twins on the way. We need more space. If you don't do this, we're going to get divorced. So you, you got to sell your coin and all, all of your net worth in Bitcoin. So you're, <laughs> it's a tough spot to be in, right? Well, what you could do is sell a covered call. So you had to sell the Bitcoin anyways because of this life event. Well, what you could do is you're taking a gamble on will Bitcoin be higher than the, the price currently is. So what you could do is you sell an at-the-money covered call. So let's say Bitcoin today is at $50,000 just for easy math. $50,000 and you sell a covered call for about one year later. So uh, at the money, so the current price, will Bitcoin be higher than the current price right now a year from now? A lot of people want to take that bet because they think it's a very probable event. So those yields are around 40 to 50% of the value of your Bitcoin. So essentially you would get 50% of the value of your Bitcoin immediately. <laughs> Lump sum cash immediately. And then your Bitcoin's locked up for that one year duration. At the end, if Bitcoin is below that price, you get your Bitcoin back. If Bitcoin is above that price, you have to sell your Bitcoin at that strike price, which if this is a proper bull run, you've sold maybe potentially a lot of upside, you know. So covered calls are just a strategy that you can use either to like earn passive income where you sell very out of the money covered calls where the price is really far away from the current price. You don't really want to sell your Bitcoin, but you want to earn a yield. And if Bitcoin triples in a month, you're like, okay, fine, sure, I'd sell my Bitcoin. Or there's a or it's uh, the other strategy is you need to sell your Bitcoin for a certain life event, a ring, a car, a house, who knows what. We only have one life to live. It's, you know, I, I, I'm going to huddle Bitcoin as much as I can, but I understand that other people have different situations. Then you can sell a covered call at the money, earn a really juicy premium right off the bat, but you are taking a big risk that Bitcoin could be higher than the price is now, in which you'd have to sell your Bitcoin at the current price. You would have lost all of that upside. So I think that adequately explains the trade-offs of, of covered call strategies, what they are, what the trade-offs are, and, and how you deploy these strategies from, a, from like a common perspective of like different life events or different, different ways to earn, to earn income. I'm surprised, though, that you think it's worth it in that 3 to 5% example. Like 3 to 5% APY, it's a lot. It's also not that much to risk selling your Bitcoin. I mean, the, it has to 3 to 4 to 5x in one month. I mean, that's very... Uh, yeah. Yeah, like I'm not betting that... So it, that 3 to 5% APY is on 3 to 4x in one month. Yeah. Yeah, these, these are yeah. very improbable events. Um, due wow. to how volatile Bitcoin is, these options are. You'd probably, have to have like Joe Biden come out and say that, like, uh, you know, Bitcoin's uh, getting adopted by the U.S. or something. Right. It's a little bit dangerous in a bull run because you're kind of picking up pennies here in front of a steamroller, and you know that the steamroller moves pretty fast. And you're hoping it's not going to move as fast as you expect. Um, yeah. At the same time, if you were like, you know what, when Bitcoin hits a hundred thousand dollars of Bitcoin. I'm going to sell 10 because I've been in for a long time. I'm going to sell 10 and be happy with that. Well, you might as well sell the covered call because you had already mentally planned on selling your coins at that price and you can earn the extra yield. Um, that I think that's a really great strategy for folks who are, are super disciplined with how they trade because they have like an exit price. They can just sell calls until that exit price is hit. Um, yeah. So that's a kind of a good way to play it as well. Yeah, for me, I don't want to sell my coin. So it's like three to four X in like a month, <laughs> which is fair. That's why the yeah. yield is so low. It's still only three to 5% on one of the most volatile assets out there because I'm like, yeah, I, I don't want to take that risk. Now, if I was betting on like Bitcoin will only three X in the next year. Yeah. I wouldn't take that bet. I think that that's very probable that Bitcoin three X is in the next six months. Um, so it's a little bit of a steamroller strategy. You're picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, but more tactically, there are certain types. This is a certain type of trade that really makes sense for different types of life events in different types of circumstances. Yeah. All right. I know we only have a few minutes left. There are two last things I wanted to ask. Um, one is yield diversification. A lot of people asked about this. They said, okay, uh, well, now Coinbase offers yield. Gemini offers yield. BlockFi offers yield. What are the benefits of yield diversification? And like, what's really going on under the hood here? Yeah, there's not a ton of benefits of yield diversification in this space. Most of the yield risk is all pooled together. We don't know the counterparty risk that is overlapped between Genesis Trading, Ledin, and BlockFi. 
we can segment our yield generation risk based on strategies. Um, let, uh, Ledger X with a covered call yield, it's a very distinctly different strategy that is almost 100% segmented away from all the other ones. Where even if there's a massive borrower default and cascading liquidations over there, it wouldn't touch Ledger X. Same with an exchange margin pool. We don't have to worry about that with an exchange margin pool. It's more of the lending platforms and all of their books put together to where we can assess that risk properly. Same with DeFi. DeFi too, like TLV, TVL numbers are like kind of crazy calculated and also like a large portion of, of <laughs> different collateralized assets are 100% are, are centralized stable coins like USDC and USDT, um, which undermines the entirety of the system. So that, I mean, that's part of what I want to cover in my, my Bitcoin DeFi series and others and, and, and kind of diving down deeper is like what risks are people truly taking um, where those risks you don't see for a while and then they become catastrophic. So I would say DeFi and the lending platforms probably have the highest risk of like kind of a, um, there could be a lot of risk that's, that's interlocked together that could blow up versus covered calls and margin pool lending. I know exactly who I'm lending to and what risks I'm taking in a very transparent manner. Um, they're just like either, either a little bit more complicated to do, or you're, you know, for example, when you lend to, uh, when you uh, sell a covered call, you're selling upside. So, um, that's where, yeah, there's, I don't think there's a good meaningful amount of diversification amongst lending platforms in DeFi, but there is a good amount of diversification amongst like covered call versus lending platform versus, um, uh, margin pool lending. Hmm. Um, I've heard you say that Gemini is just basically Genesis repackaged under Gemini UI. Are there any uh, any other like hidden secrets of yield gen in this space? Yeah, I mean, Ledin is the same thing. So Ledin was the first corporate customer of Genesis to do that. So Genesis mm -hmm. doesn't have a consumer retail trader arm where I could lend my coins to Genesis for like one Bitcoin. Like I, I can't lend one Bitcoin to Genesis trading. They require like 50 or 100 Bitcoin. So what Ledin did is they put a consumer wrapper around that service to where Ledin uh, deals with the consumer and then the back end, the lending part was powered by Genesis trading. Uh, Gemini does that as well to where uh, Genesis is the back end lend. They do all the lending and risk assessment and um, the Gemini just collects the coins, sends them over to Genesis and Genesis does that all magic automatically in the background. Uh, there's probably a few others that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but Genesis does this for a couple clients. Genesis is the biggest one in the space. Genesis is huge. Um, they've also been doing it since 2013. That's why a majority of my coins are at Genesis. But again, you've got to be a, a big, big kind of oil customer, um, to, which makes it difficult for the average day person to, to participate in. Yeah. Um, insurance policies. I know a lot of these people claim to be quote unquote insured. I know a lot of them, it's, you know, kind of false marketing. I've heard you get pretty pissed off about this. What's, uh, yeah. What 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 is you know what does this really mean when you know someone like Nexo says that they're insured? There's no fucking insurance for this stuff. Like, <laughs> let's just be clear about that. Like, there's no FDIC insurance for this. There's no there's no bailout that's going to happen unless they're really big and they have a lot of money and they can subsidize a loss. Um, these are so some of these companies falsely advertise that they have insurance. What they're falsely advertising is that maybe the USD deposits, like actual dollar deposits at the bank, have FDIC insurance. Your Bitcoin doesn't have that. None of the crypto has that, which is a majority of their AUM. Also, some falsely claim that their their uh, cold storage has um, insurance on it. Uh, for example, like you brought up Nexo. That is BitGo's insurance policy of all depositors at BitGo, not exclusively just them. So I think that's very misleading to kind of bucket that all together and say, we have this insurance policy on our cold storage when actually that's the insurance policy on all Bitcoin customers cold storage. And, and, I, and there's even a more, I think there's even a, a bigger part to this as well, which is that like, who gives a shit? The whole point is I lent out coins to you to lend them out. Why, why do you even have coins in cold storage? If you're trying to earn the best yield possible, you'd be lending out all the coins to earn a yield versus the coins sitting in your cold storage, which would earn no yield and would earn none of us yield. So it's, it's sort of a, I think a very uh, bad way to market it, a very dis dishonest way to market the products because the coins first and foremost should not be held in cold storage. They should be more of them should be lent out than being held in cold storage. 
Second, that insurance policy doesn't, it does cover them for a very tiny amount, but it's misleading as to how much that covers. Gotcha. All right, man. This has been great. Um, I know you've got some uh, some more tacos to eat down in uh, down in Austin. But any uh, any last you know masterclass wisdom on uh, generating yield on your Bitcoin before we wrap this up? Yeah. So mentally, be prepared to take risk. Don't think about this as your savings account. This is not the same type of risk. You are taking more risk than a typical savings account. But you only live once, so if you want to take risk and you want to take a risk with a small amount of your portfolio, that's how I've approached it. Do not bet everything. You will. I've been in crypto for eight years. Trust me, we, we don't know how this all plays out. I'm willing to risk a certain amount of my coin. I'm certainly not risking most of it. And so I definitely recommend that people just make sure to size your risk appropriately. Awesome. All right, Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, if you guys aren't already subscribed to Dan's newsletter, check it out. Uh, I'm sure you all follow him on Twitter already, but give him a follow there as well. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's The Held Report. Uh, you'll find a link in my, new, in my uh, bio on Twitter. But yeah, Jason, thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers.